0: Hello, this is Coming to the Mat podcast from the Melanesian Women Today Impact Service Series. Told through the lens of everyday, ordinary Pacific Island women, the Mat series seeks to break cultural barriers and invite listeners to hear real human stories of making a difference. The stories you will hear from this series balance diverse interests and weave together the story of courageous women who dedicate their lives to making a difference in their communities and country. Coming to the Mat series is a safe space that allows for women in the Pacific to use their forces. It also explores the integral aspects of women's lives all across the South Pacific and gives the listener a window into the many different issues women face through storytelling.
1: restore the dignity of Indigenous heritage food culture or cuisine, starting with my particular sub-ethnic group. I say sub-ethnic group specifically because, obviously, Vanuatu like PNG has many diverse different uh...
0: This is Dr. Mere Tarisovic, your host on Coming to the Mat. I'm glad you can join me once again for another episode here on the Mat Podcast, where we engage with more leading thinkers in the Pacific region, especially with a courageous Pacific Island women from all walks of life across the Pacific, spanning all the three sub-regions of Melanesia, Polynesia, and Micronesia. These courageous women who are challenging the status quo in breaking down barriers, not just in the field of politics, in the civil society spaces, but also taking on the challenge to restoring indigenous food sovereignty and the food system. By spanning these sub-regions of the Pacific and connecting with our guests that are out there doing wonderful and important work for the communities, most often would join us from very remote areas where the luxury of a fast speed internet is not always a given. Today, we're headed to Bougainville, officially known as the outermost region of Bougainville in Papua New Guinea. In this episode, we're going to talk to one woman who has made it her mission to work towards restoring the Melanesian house cook to its rightful place in a modern setting and deconstructing the Western kitchen by unraveling what is indigenous Melanesian food, identity and globalization. Now, given that there are many layers to cover with Indigenous food, identity, and globalization, our guest prefers to frame the discussion around uncovering layers of Indigenous food culture and impacts of globalization, starting with a post-colonial identity, the individualistic narrative of a Neo-Melanesian that has learned to question unraveling the Indigenous consciousness through traditional and progressive food culture. We also discuss her flowchart of what she refers to as the Neo-Melanesian from decolonization to post-colonial identity. Meet Claire Assi. Claire Assi is from the country of Papua New Guinea, most specifically from the Central Province and from the Rigo District. She has a background in political science and public policy from the University of Papua New Guinea. She is currently serving as the first secretary to the Minister for Education of Bougainville, Ms. Theolina Roca-Matpop, member of, or member for, Laurel Constituency in Banguna District, at Bougainville government. Prior to that, she was a political staff to the provincial government of Central Provincial Government, Office of the Governor for Central Province, Honorable Robert Agarobe. She attended culinary school at the Culinary Institute of Israel in Elat, Ben-Gurion University of the Negev Tourism and Hospitality School, and is certified in Israeli, Mediterranean, and Middle Eastern cuisine. She also runs a local catering business in Port Moresby with her sister called Sisters & Coal Catering. They focus on traditional and progressive local dishes from their home province of the central province in the Rigo District, sub-ethnic group. She has also engaged in some regional work on self-determination in the Pacific and has a background of working in program management with youth development organizations, organization, The Voice, Inc. Welcome to Coming to the Mat.
1: I am from Papua New Guinea, so more specifically central province, um, and my district is the Wigo district. And uh, so my background is in political science and public policy undergrad. So um, a lot of uh, what I did after the university at UPNG, at the University of Papua New Guinea was um, uh, in the civil society space. So I was involved with a youth development of mental organizations since I was 18 years old. It was the first one, The Voice Inc. At that time when there were no youth spaces available, so The Voice helped to kind of pioneer that. And then they, all these offshoot um, youth groups that are popping up as well too, which was a quite exciting to be a part of And I then expanded on to set up in at the University of Technology, three major state universities. So UPNG University of Technology in Lane, Morabi Province, and the University of Garoka in Eastern Highland's office. And there's been centers of leadership there. The reason why I referenced that is because a lot of these stimulating discussions that we're facilitating early on, started off in those different university spaces and then also going into the high schools as well to start getting a lot more young people thinking and learning to leadership. From uh, The Voice Inc., I then did just some brief work with Bismarck ramu Group, um, and it was more focused on just conversations with West Papua and its self-determination. Uh, there was a, a short stint for a couple of months, but uh, that was really good to be a part of as it was in line with my own uh, personal convictions around Melanesian solidarity and self-determination. Mm-hmm. From Bismarck Ramu Group, I then returned to The Voice again to... Uh, manage their programs across the different universities. Uh, but before that, I decided, okay, I'm young and I think I'm tired of uh, just talking and just thinking um, and just being an advocate. I'd like to do something a bit more practical, something in trade. And so uh, when my mom, I asked my mom, I was like, mom, what should I do with my life now? And she said, I've seen you in the kitchen. Um. Um, I see how happy you are in it. Maybe you should look at a culinary school overseas and we will support you. And so I wanted to do something a bit more uncommon. And instead of like, you know, predictably looking at culinary schools in the Asia Pacific, so more specifically in either Australia or New Zealand or one of the other um, Southeast Asian countries, I thought, let me try to look a bit further on because... I really wanted to practically sketch my own global landscape of what the world actually looks like, my own landscape. And so after doing my research online, I had then seen that there was a culinary program for non-Jewish people to attend in Israel. So I think it was part of um, this particular group of entrepreneurs in Israel, their initiative to change the perception. Uh, I was in Eilat, so lot is... Um, much closer to, I think, so Jordan is just uh, it's it's by the Red Sea, so it's which is shared between uh, borders of Egypt and Jordan, so and it was this uh, tiny resort city that had just like a whole number of hotels that were there, targeted towards um, religious tourists, and so that was the place where the culinary program was at at Ben Gurion University, the tourism mm-hmm. and hospitality school. I was the only Papua in Guinea and probably the only Pacific Islander, as much as I know. There were South Americans there, um, a whole, uh, whole bunch of um, uh, young people from the US and from Canada and uh, um, uh, the Czech Republic in Ukraine. Mm. So we were all part of that one group. I think there was about 46 of us. Mm. So it was quite interesting um, being in Israel and realizing that, you know, mm. if there are many who take the time to actually get to understand Israel's history, but more the political history, it's a melting pot of different cultures and flavors and people are Jews that have migrated from different parts of the world Mm -hmm. who have come back to resettle back to their promised land. And so I guess you could say that all these different experiences were kind of like building layers and layers of foundations about my sense of wandering
2: um,
1: as a Melanesian. Um, For me, it wasn't really about the aesthetics of food or focusing on specializing in the techniques. I think it was probably, now that I think back, just to the truth. I wanted to see what were the commonalities, but also what were the differences as well, too. I think there's also some kind of a connection between being in a conflict-ridden place like Israel and then fast forward how many years later. Being here in Boganville as well to now working with the autonomous Bougainville government in the lead up to potentially by 2027. So um, I returned, I set up a uh, catering business, local food business with my sister called Sisters in Co Catering. And for me, the whole goal was my sisters were focused around the business side of things, the management, the marketing. I wanted to focus on what is the purpose. So that's so why we're we doing this, because it's definitely mm. not about profit. If I wanted mm. to make it about profit, I could have focused on progressive I could have focused on, you know, doing a whole bunch of, like, Asian-style cuisine with um, Western food and all that to just create pack and then make pasta mm. But for me, it went more than that. I realized we needed to restore the dignity of Indigenous, Indigenous, food culture, or cuisine, mm. starting with my particular sub-ethnic, I say sub ethnic groups specifically because obviously Vanuatu, like PNG has many diverse different which uh, groups as mm-hmm. to well too, which creates sub ethnic groups. Um mm-hmm. in that way too, it also legitimized why we would want to take ownership of this food philosophy around restoring the dignity of Melanesian food because we as Melanesians can be skeptical about who made you an authority on this, who do you represent? So as much as possible by deconstructing it further to our place of origin it will help mm-hmm. us to have more of a legitimacy around why we wanted to use food as that. Um, so yes that's um, that's basically me
0: <laughs> Sorry. Oh, thank you thank you so much so I think the one thing that really like I said in my Communication with you, I said one that really struck a chord for me was the fact that you know, because um, I we have done couple of I think there two two different from a from a Vanuatu Melanesian obviously Vanuatu uh approach of food, looking at identity, and in the spiritual side of food, and it goes again in Melanesia, uh, perhaps the, the the diversity we're so dense in our diversity that. Uh, uh, like you said, we could look at it in different layers. There's so many, so many aspects of it that we could look at it. So uh, back to the fact that you, will, you were on a mission towards restoring that Melanesian house cook to its rightful place in a modern setting and, distract, and uh, dis, uh, discontracting the Western kitchen. So I wanted, I wanted to kind of understand um, your idea maybe, maybe expl- explain i know you've you've explained a little bit before but how do you see that happen
1: okay yes so um for me it was like about what was practical um mm-hmm. starting with um, how we had to deconstruct the West when we were um looking traditional food it was like so when we look at the household or well, the design of houses that are made in mostly in P and G. Especially in the urban areas where we have permanent homes. The obviously the kitchen is inside the house, right? Inside the home. Whereas um, in a Melanesian setting, the kitchen is also always outside of the main house. And usually that's where all the women gather mm-hmm. So I thought back to memories of, like, mm. when I go home to the village, and where the place of cooking is um, situated, compared to where we go and rest, where we go and sleep,
2: mm.
1: and where we go and eat, or where we go to use the to do our business. And so when I saw those two different constructs of um, uh, the homes, that, the modern homes that we now live in, it got me to question. And then so based on my experience working in a commercial kitchen, the kitchen stations and how it is designed are very important to um, the preparation of meal um, and how a team organizes itself in order to have the final product available for So in this case, let's say, so our traditional food is barova. So biova is a mix of sago and ripe banana that's mashed together. And wrapped in this leaf that looks like a hyphonia leaf but a bit different Um, I don't know the scientific name for it so we fold it and then we boil it in water and then we do coconut cream or coconut oil and put it on top and that's a ceremonial dish of peace and folk people and reconciliation so there's so many processes that are involved and the techniques are so complex it is labor intensive as well and um, when I had started unraveling and I started to be a bit more, I guess, take note of each step-by-step process, I realized, my goodness, it takes on average, minimum, if it's a small order, it's like seven hours. When I moved to, I, I saw how one of the initiatives that we started was, um, um, what was it, got to table catering. I wanted to see how that approach would look like if we prepared If we move the kitchen back to the village, which is like a three-hour drive from the city, I have to cross the river to get to the other side, but uh, thank you for sealed roads and making the distance much more uh, quicker. So um, when we moved our kitchen back to the village and we gathered our aunties uh, to be involved with the river-making process, now the only issue that we had was actually being able to deliver it back and mostly to our um, customers in time, uh, but also making sure that because this is traditional food and the food is organic and it's fresh, um, that it would still be preserved and still be good to eat, that so it wouldn't spoil. Uh, so I was calculating how long is it going to take to get on the canoe, uh, walk a fair distance, to the riverside, everything passed over, pack the food, get in the vehicle, drive at least to the city, and then start delivering it to our customers. Something that um, I was also trying to, it was unrealistic, um, uh, but in my philosophical quest it was necessary for me to have some context into understanding um, how important the Melanesian house cook is, but now having a place in you know modern Melanesian society. Mm-hmm. So what is the middle ground for all of that? came about because there's this one extreme situation and then another one. And so what is this middle ground here that we can all sit on, combining West and Melanesia together because Mm -hmm. we can't live without the other because we're post colonial So again, that was another journey of wondering that I was going through. Um, I guess my Facebook post that got your attention was obviously the local culinary workshop that I was running in so when um word had gotten around that um apart from being a political advisor to the Minister for Education, mm-hmm. I was I also had a background in cooking, but more specifically in, in Indigenous progressive Indigenous food in my area. There was a um a entrepreneur here named Delwyn Ketzen from DJ Organics, mm-hmm. who's on a similar quest. Mm-hmm. Was um interested in this. And, but she wanted to, but she asked me specifically for me to conduct the training on infusions. So infusing different coconut of or other types of oil. But when I saw that they also had a restaurant at their lodge, and she asked me to design the, design a training manual um, in the lead up to actually uh, traveling to Arawa. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: it was really important to not start with, the infusions, but to start from the very beginning as Melanesian, um, and so I sent I sent her my um, concept of how I wanted to conduct the training, with the overall vision of restoring restoring the Melanesian hospital to its rightful place in a modern setting, because she had a recipe that was designed with uh, um, in, in a similar uh, Melanesian type of construct to an extent. Uh, mm-hmm. While the eating area was a Melanesian design, 20, but with tables and chairs, the kitchen was still a bit Western. But I could mm-hmm. see that she had already started the journey. It just needed to continue. Uh, the more that uh, like minded um, women could come together who were on a similar quest, that mm-hmm. to have these conversations and share knowledge and experience, it would help the deconstruction in terms of how they would redesign when they would expand their business further. So she agreed to that. I Went across, um, language was obviously a barrier, and I explained a little bit about it in my Facebook post. Um, from the very beginning, um, when I introduced myself, because uh, PNG's political history in like, September 6th, we had always been administered separately New Guinea and Papua. Mm. So, obviously, Papua was more the crown territory, um, from. Um, Great Britain to Australia, whereas New Guinea was um, the German New Guinea Company, which then was administered by Australia separately. As well too. So, so two separate colonial administrations managed by government by the Australian government, uh, which then on September 16 came together. So, German New Guinea would have been more predominantly pidgin speaking, whereas Papua would have been more English. And so, pigeon has always been something that um, I found very difficult to articulate myself in. And sometimes I get frustrated because I'm like, oh, there's only 2,000 words in pigeon. How can you express yourself? You know? <laughs> um, but it's just a limited number of words to try to translate what you're thinking here into actual words. And so I thought, okay, because uh, one of the misconceptions um, over 40 years into independence is the, I guess, the, uh, the prominence of pidgin in png now um where i remember in university it, it, what i could see was you know if you could speak in pidgin then you were really New Guinea. Mm. Uh, that was and was the language of adaptation but the language of acceptance
0: you know.
1: so i uh, based on that experience and amongst others um, I thought okay. Um, when I introduce myself, I tell them that I'm going to be speaking a lot more in English, but it, it doesn't matter. The language doesn't matter, um, mm-hmm. and the uh, So in that process, and the different conversations that we had for the for those three days, from theory to practice, was more, and because a lot of the women. I actually, more, all the women are grassroots-based. I so, was worried about me becoming more of an intellectual um, uh, point.
0: So were, were all these women, um, you were running this three-day uh, session, and they're all business women or are they just village uh, women that wanted to learn, or oh, just every day, you know, moms and aunties yes. who want um, to learn about food?
1: So there are about nine participants.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so we're expecting 12, but only nine attended. And so out of the nine, three of them were actual staff of, the, of, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is from the village. Another woman is from the, from Panguna, mm-hmm. but she supplies, uh, she's a supplier. She supplies mushrooms, mushrooms to, uh, Delwyn's kitchen. The other two, have their own transit lodge in Iowa as well. They run their own business, but they're also just starting up, and um, I think they, yeah, they're, they're more grassroots-based.
0: So you were saying about using English as the, as the basis of your mode of communication with them, and how how did that go? Yeah.
1: Um, it went okay. Uh, I think that's what was important to have Delvin, who was the person that invited me, in there to kind of be the wherever things were not clear, I i will obviously break down um uh what is it with the audience and see where I could really, you know, articulate myself with pigeon, then I'd obviously make that effort to do so. Um uh to switch the language. But if not mm-hmm. Dylan was always there to just uh, break it down even further. Um
2: mm-hmm.
1: to translate if so things got lost in translation. Nice. But there is a bit of English including example to it that wasn't the problem. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. so um what 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 the main ingredients were you guys using during the the three-day session
1: i uh well because delvin has a garden
0: in her backyard nice
1: but she also relies on the farmers uh she has a relationship with the local farmers like uh, Central Boganville as well too. I think more specifically from Anguna and the uh, Wakunai side, which is one of the largest constituencies here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, the most important question we had to ask ourselves was, um, what do you have around you? So that's the first question I asked. Hey, Delvin, what do you have in your garden right now? And, yeah, And what can we make out of it? But based on what was available, then we started to construct the near. And that's when the conversation rolled into, okay, so... Um, which I actually native to and which I were actually interviewed.
0: So this is what the question I wanted to ask you about what, you know, the traditional or indigenous food. So, so how, yes. how did that go?
1: Um, it went well. I think um, I remember the, the participants were quite, um, I did not know because um, they were very difficult to read because you couldn't see yeah. anything on their faces. And so I was quite uncertain about whether they understood, they disagreed, or, uh, the first day was, um, very challenging in trying to, um, get them engaged. I did not realize that it was, the, this was new
2: to oh. them.
1: Coming together like this and having this conversation was new. So what did they have to say? It was a whole bunch of digesting and absorbing and trying to make sense. Uh. Obviously, it's not new in terms of, they don't know these things. Obviously, they do, because mm-hmm. you know, they're connected to the land. Always have been. villains are, are very connected to the land. and mm-hmm. I think it was more about everything that is inside of here and here, in your head and in your heart, and trying not to just have a conversation about it, talk about mm-hmm. it, articulate it, express mm-hmm. it. So it's so easy to say, you know, I am villain or I am Papua New Guinea. I am Papuan. Mm-hmm but it's so difficult to then define what that means. Right. But you know it so well, because mm-hmm. it's you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Guessing that that was probably what was going on on the first day. And there was mm-hmm. one, I needed to with the audience to then switch my engagement. Um, mm-hmm. And she said, Claire in Pigeon, she said, mm-hmm. um, uh, when we are sitting quietly and not saying anything, it's mm-hmm. not because we don't understand. We're listening to everything you're saying, but it's like you are, you, you are dropping a bomb and we're trying to recover, properly. we're trying uh, to absorb it.
0: So did, did you find that, because I find in the Solomon Islands, and I think sometimes also in Vanuatu, because of so much of our diversity, but of course we still have that unity in our, in our diversity. And then, you, you know, we're talking about food, which is very universal, Right. Did you find that certain crops that you were using, everybody had some sort of common story around it, even though it was very new to them? But because of the food, it was was there certain crops there that kind of makes sense for them. Yes. Uh, definitely coconut.
1: Coconut is what comes to mind. Everybody mm-hmm. connect coconut milk to Uh because you know when we talk about plant based milk, right? Mm-hmm. That would have been coconut for us in Melanesia. So yeah. There's says that it's coconuts used in um, a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Tara as well, too. I think uh, Tara is more spiritual
2: for
1: the um, and than it would be for me in uh, Central Province. We would be more yam and bananas, uh, uh, whereas they would be
0: I mean, the fact that Melanesians, yeah, the Pacific Islanders for, in general, traditional staples are eaten in the Pacific, mostly root crops. So, you yep. know, so you're saying you, you're more from the, the the others are from Taro. And then I know where I'm from. we mainly YAM, <laughs> YAM people. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Yep. So did you find that they had to, you know, there was sort of exchange of stories when you were working with them? Because
1: it was all new, I had to take a step-by-step process. So I remember, I think, on the... Third day, our second day, towards the end of the day, before we prepared for the more practical stuff, um, was then going, okay, so because they were all from central Bougainville, because Bougainville has three regions, north, south, and central. South, which is more closer to uh, western Solomon's. Mm. um, Because they're from central Bougainville, they were only able to talk about um, traditional food from central Bougainville. So I asked, okay, so what are the uh, most popular and common traditional dishes of Central Bougainville? Let's identify the three main ones. And from there, we'll group ourselves into three. And in those three groups, before you talk about the traditional dish, you to tell the story about it, if it is attached to a legend or anything.
2: Hmm.
1: How did it come into the community? Hmm. And then what was the purpose of it? Was it a peace dish? Was it a reconciliation dish? Was it a you know an initiation dish of some sort? What was the ceremony or the ritual that was attached to? It? And then from there, what were the what was the process, the methodology of making? What were the techniques that were used? What were the tools that were invented in order to actually add the help with the technique of making that food and so on and so forth? But again it was deconstructed. As well so that was also a rediscovery for them who have always just done it uh, subconsciously because mm. it's part of them, mm. Now breaking it down into a natural um, process. Mm. Because of what uh, before we got to um, identifying the three t- traditional dishes that they know so well that they identified, wanted to uh, talk about the process mm. behind it. Um, the most popular one that did come up first before we removed it from the list was Tamatama. So, so um, then I asked, okay, so the name Tamatama, which part of Central Goldenville does it come from? And they all said, and they're like, hey. So the main, um, like, people in Central they're, uh they they would be known if referred to as Kieta people.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then you have the different language. So here the people would obviously speak the nasiyoi language. Mm-hmm. So I asked, is a nasiyoi term and topless lo nasiyoi? And they were like, mm-hmm. oh God, make that like, tamatawa I don't even go I must come They mm-hmm. okay, so if you plot Sam, if that's what you are seeing, if that's what you are seeing, then we need to talk about one and something, what is traditional food, what is local food, and what is international. That's when that conversation, question had to come. They thought about it and they said traditional kai-kai and kai-kai blotumbuna.
0: Oh, that okay, there. so kai-kai blotumbuna, that's a traditional, what in, yeah, traditional food. Now, can you say the name of the dish again that you were saying before? Tama Tamatama. Tamataman, and what is that for those who might
1: be listening? Yes. So, tamatama is a a taro, uh, sorry, yeah, a cassava, so tapioca and banana dish. Mm -hmm. So, usually it's uh, made separately, so um, there's uh, cassava or tapioca tamatama, and then there is a a specific banana that they use. I, I... I don't know what the native name for it is. It's mm-hmm. a cousin of the one that we have back in my are those, place.
0: But... Are those the big ones? Um, or smaller? Smaller, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So they're kind of like colorful bananas. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're orange bananas. They're quite slim. Um, yeah. So they have this like gigantic mortar and pestle that they use, uh, where they
0: hit the taro in it. So they, oh, like
1: mash, sorry, it the, uh, they mash it up? They match it up.
0: On a piece of wood, then? Would, would be in a... What yep, they a wooden it? pestle. Okay.
1: A okay. wooden uh, pestle. So mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's one of those really long ones where you stand and you just get this long, um, long stick and you just keep hitting it. And mm-hmm. so they'd hit it, hit it, and the story that they told me was uh, you can tell by the sound, from the sound, if it is a woman that is hitting the woklo pipe in tamatama, mm-hmm. or if it's a man,
2: ah.
1: or made by a walking Muslim. Whereas the men will be. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're walking a fair distance to the other side, and you hear the sound of tamatama being made, mm-hmm. you'd be able to tell from the sound and the beats against the the mortar, the wooden mortar, if it was mm-hmm. a man or a woman that was and so
0: do, I thought do, that was interesting. Do they have a song that goes with that too? The prepare, preparation of that? This... Yes, yeah, the- mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm.
0: they do. I they think, do. I, I think
1: there's some singing. Uh, they did mention kind of briefly and vaguely through it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think because we were just like going fast with the conversations unraveling and trying to get not to the practical part, we didn't mm-hmm. really get deeper into it. I also believe that, based on cultural protocol and maybe it's also because I didn't really ask that question that there were certain things that I was privy to in understanding about you know the sacredness behind the traditional dishes, been uh, if that makes sense
0: that's that's the beauty about you know this kind of conversation we're having because here you and I talking about you know we went from deconstruction or of kitchen to now we're talking about you know the crops. And then more so about the different diversity of you know the the women who are there, and how they prepare the food and what those food or crops mean to them. And then I'm sitting here across, and I can there are a certain aspect of it that's very relatable to Vanuatu way of preparing dish. Um, so it's kind of like we are both understanding it from different length, uh, and and it's amazing that food can when we talk about that identity, right? that Melanesian value of identity that comes with food and land, um, how we prepare it and the different customs, you know, that comes with that. So it's very, so we see food from a very different lens, you know, uh, despite our diversity, there's still this aspects of the spiritual aspect of it, uh, the simplicity of it, or the symbolism of it, um, you know, and then we go into the details of marriage of preparation. If there's, you know, how does it how's it used in marriage ceremony, sorry, ceremony, and the list yeah. just goes on. So, it's a lot yeah. to be proud, you know, take pride of of what what we have. So, yes. um, yeah. So go ahead, tell me, tell me more. Yeah. I'm I think you're getting really fascinated about all this.
1: I mean, like you're saying that, and I just thought of. Um... I remember one time when I had to, uh, in talking about the Melanesian house book and restoring the dignity of uh, indigenous food culture, mm-hmm. I said, mm-hmm. there is something liberating about seeing the evidence of our civilization uh, based on our food culture, traditional food culture. you know? mm-hmm. uh, Because we weren't really a uh, society that was based on the written work that like you see it in. Mm-hmm. I think the most... Um, yeah, the evidence mm-hmm. of that is communities that are oh, uh, the same a tradition food culture where you can go, what is the evidence of your civilization, okay? Mm-hmm. This is how we make our It's mm-hmm. how we make tamatama, mm-hmm. this is how we make this dish and that dish. Mm-hmm. And then it brings me back to um, something that an Israeli chef had said when he talked about the soul of Israel. He says, what is the taste of home?" Can the memories of our childhood be captured in a single bite? How and satisfying is the dish that made its way from generation to generation. And that's something that's deeply resonated with me as well, too, as we continue this journey of restoring the Melanesian household in a modern habit.
0: Mm, wow. So, so did you... Um, so I think my, my next question is, so we talked a little bit about the traditional food or indigenous food, and you've given some really good yeah. examples. Um I know we're going to skip on, on the different, we're going to be jumping into different converse, uh, questions. But now it comes to local food, because we do tend to use that all the time. And, we, you know, I think I tend to. Interchangeably to. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to sometimes, when I think about it from a Vanuatu term, since I'm from Vanuatu, immediately it goes from local kakai, you know, it's kind of like. But it can also be like traditional food. Um, but then again. Yeah. We also can can kind of put it from the Western view; it's almost kind of exactly. that localized that place where the food comes from. That particular crop comes, you know, it's been planted or harvested in certain ways, or prepared yes. in certain ways. So, in your view, um, in in your area, what is what is local food then for? I guess in, in where you're for your society or your particular group how would you define local food?
1: Well, um when I had asked them that question, that guy and yeah, so as far as they could go, but they knew exactly what they were talking about. So that then gave me um room to unpack that further with them. Um uh, by going, Okay, so local kaikai could definitely be, you know, introduce crops from the outside, native crops from um within that are grown on the land that can be used to now put different food. Um, and I think the best way to kind of like um, illustrate that is seeing our progressive food, you know, Melanesian food culture through a spectrum, maybe, or a continuous model. So if we, had yes. if we had traditional on one end of it and international on the other, in the middle would be local
0: nice nice food very nice yeah Yeah, that makes sense so um let's see when you come to international food that's interesting i mean i'm thinking imported food that's all i think about it's chinese store (laughs) oh you know australian goods that are coming in from australia or new zealand or the united states so what did they say what did the women's what was the expression? or What was the answers? Kakae blew outside. That's what they said. So when they couldn't said... go
1: anywhere.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Uh, because a lot of, um, like, Mosby is very different from the, like, other urban areas in uh, the rest of PNG. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I really wanted to focus on being um, in, in my continuous um, quest um to fulfill my mission, uh, the impacts of globalization that have come I in little bits and pieces uh, um, that have uh, broken down um the uh, local food systems which you talked about in a previous um podcast with Dr. Kirk. But um mm-hmm. so like they talked about I asked um if you were to follow the Western concept mm-hmm. of um the four elements of cooking, which would be salt, water, fat, and acid. And so we use that as a checklist against this traditional meal that you prepared. What type of salt did you use to flavor the food? So um, before salt came in and you started putting salt on your traditional food to just give it a bit of flavor because we love our salt, we love our chicken stock, how were our tumbunas flavoring their meals. Um, And that was a very challenging question for them to answer. I think that in terms of international food, uh, based on my exposure, I would have had um, a much more uh, clear definition of it compared to them. Whereas for them, they know it's kakaibu outside, obviously rice um, and food. Uh, Sources. Mm -hmm. You -hmm. talked about mayonnaise in one of the previous Mm. sessions and and so many other things but Mm. they wouldn't be able to a definition of it like I blew outside words
0: did you did you you find did you ask themselves did you ask them to describe it more meaning like um, you know how you have that relationship between something right because we all kind of creatures of habit, right and I'm thinking more like my conversation with dr kirk for me in my head when i think of imported food i cannot think further than how did how do they grow that food i mean i just know that i go to the mm-hmm. sh- store and it's there were there any yeah. discussion to that Other yeah. ladies
1: to be honest it was the elephant in the room mm-hmm. um because uh what then kind of like uh, um dominated the discussion was the taboo based around how progressive you get with Tumbuna with traditional food. They to connect the international part of it to the traditional, but they put a barrier there, which they had to respect. And then, so then we kind of like stopped the conversation, and then one of the participants asked, why are you asking us about this? What's your objective? Hmm. And then, so I said, well, um, when I introduced myself, after when I introduced myself, I um, I um talked to you about how I've broken a bit of tradition by becoming a bit progressive with the traditional packet, So obviously, when it comes to the actual bariva that me and my sister and my mother and my aunt would make, that's the way the tumbunas have made it, we do not alter. What we do play around with is the different flavors of coconut cream that we want to make. With spices, with food, with all to elevate the taste of the body. And that's just mm-hmm. it. So, there is definitely a bonus, a, um, a taboo that we've placed on the Baeva itself, but we've changed the rules with the actual cream. So, I thought that, but now that you have placed a really big taboo on even trying to have a conversation around the potential for your tunguna packet to be progressive then um, I can't speak to that. Hmm. I have to receive that from you. But I said, I think it would be, if since you want me to be very honest with my objective, I'll tell you, um, I'd like to share a personal opinion. Um, and it is that, uh, and it's up to you how you take it. First of all, um, how can we talk about putting boundaries uh, about Tumbuna food must always say that um, and then make statements like, we need to go back to the way that we used to eat um, before, like our Tumbunas, because that is who we are. That's who we've always been. When, in actual fact, let's be honest, you're going to go home and you're going to be really tired and you're going to buy a packet of rice and a tin fish, That's what you're going to eat before you go. How can we talk about these things when we are wearing... You close white man. You know?
0: Dog, yeah. mm-hmm.
1: So I'd capture the politics of that mm. in breaking that bit of my traditional food culture to create room for progressivism. To mm. show the impact of globalization, but most importantly, our post colonialism, our post colonial identity. I believe personally that um, in our process of decolonization and deconstructing all the way back to our original Melanesian identity, um, it, there is an extent to which you can decolonize or deconstruct or else what you will have left is that I'm, I'm not my tribuna, you know? Um And that's a conversation that we have with, I just had that with uh, a group of young people last night and they were talking about decolonization. Because what happens is that when they cannot deconstruct any further anger and resentment comes in, xenophobia comes in, distrust of what the outsider comes in as well, to get, we still eat the food because we're dependent on it. We can't help it. It's the policy. It. So, yeah. I mean, in, yeah. So that was just, so that was the bit of a tension, mm-hmm. healthy tension, in the mm-hmm. conversation that we were having before we were able to come together in the kitchen again.
0: So do you feel that in Papua New Guinea itself, well, of course, it's very big, because of the layers of different, you know, colonial settings, you know, you have German on one side and all that. Do you think that that's why it's to the, to the place where when we're just talking about simple food, there is, you find that there's tensions? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think in Vanuatu, there could be tension only when, obviously, we're small. Um, when, you know, maybe because we, I prepare it this way, you know, so you prepare it that way. So don't come and change what I prepare that kind of discussion. Yep. But having said that the youth today, especially in the capital, you know, you, you tell them about eating a traditional food and then they turn around and go start making cake or, you know because i need to buy something so i have to make cake to sell it so yeah yep. so we are i guess in a way we're not i don't know would would you say we're stuck do you think we're stuck or we are just trying harder to mm. decolonize our mind and deconstruct everything that we've we've now kind of in it how do you see the whole melanesia in how we deconstruct our mind, our, our, our conversations, our to be to, again, like, like I, I feel like we're trying, like trying to. to
2: mm.
0: our, our conversation is kind of more on about our identity, finding it through food. You, you see what I'm saying? Like I, I feel like all of this is just kind of trying yeah. to figure yeah. out who we are, which is why I wanted so much to talk to Dr. You know, yeah. Kirk yeah. when we were talking about that. So, what, what's, how do you see that in, in Papua New Guinea?
1: I believe that um, deconstructing and decolonizing is important to understand what makes the fundamental Melanesian worldview, how we make sense of the world and our reality. And in that process of deconstruction, not deliberately trying to eliminate the bits that we are uncomfortable with, like being colonized by different imperial and food that comes in during the colonial and post-colonial identity that mm-hmm. makes up who we are. And instead of being resentful mm-hmm. of that because we have no control over that aspect of our identity,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we have to make the most of the reality that we have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is why, naming it as neo-Melanesian, my post-colonial identity was very, very important for me to find some sense of, um, to be the same, to not okay. lose my mind,
0: so I have to post <clears> you there, and then I have to. <laughs> so she came up with this for me. I had I was looking around and thinking, okay, this is really fascinating. So we had talked yep. about your your perspective or your uh, the meaning to neo Melanesian.
1: Yes, so like because um, the meaning to neo Melanesian again, you uh, touched on layers because it's uncovering layers and layers of it the Neo-Melanesian identity has to be compartmentalized in in my own thought process Mm
2: -hmm.
1: into different groups. Um, And so that was why I had sent you my Neo-Melanesian (laughs) flowchart.
0: Very nice. I (laughs) was going to ask the permission. Okay, what is the
1: place of origin? So Mm -hmm. in Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. So uh, my flowchart would start with, place of origin so okay. there's a saying that Bismarck Ramu group used to use 50,000 years of culture 150 years of cargo um, so mm. it's just like if we go with the place of origin how old is the land in Indonesia okay and then mm-hmm. after the yeah, 50,000 years ago the indigenous Melanesians before the arrival of the Austronesian settlers along the coastline mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then there is how did they live and what, they, what, what did they eat so um I've always wondered if pigs were native to the land because we have such a spiritual connection to it as well too
0: there and is. Uh, so when, you, when yeah. you speak about the Bismarck you know that area all the way up to Vanuatu yep. <laughs> you can't do without pigs
1: <laughs> um, so I remember there was a um a spiritual cleansing that took place here in Pogonville uh, and you know, I thought, oh, okay, so is it going to be like, is the church going to get involved in the spiritual cleansing? Mm-hmm. like, no, it's going to be a, a, a blood cleansing with uh, mm-hmm. pig's blood.
0: Mm-hmm. And I just
1: went, oh, okay, that's interesting.
0: So that's, hang on, hang on, let's talk about that, because that's like a challenging thought, right? Because I'm, th- I'm thinking the same thing. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, now Jesus is going to come back right now. Let <laughs> you
1: be talking about Christianity. Uh, but mm. it was um, sending, sprinkling pig's blood um, mm. all over the place to ward off evil spirits that were causing uh, a good number of deaths uh,
2: here. Mm. <clears throat>
1: I don't know if that has had an impact or not. We'll see at the end of the year. But uh, that's when I was just like, wait a minute, but are pigs native to the land? And so when I was doing my own research, and I'm not an anthropologist, but um, from what I had read, pigs are native to Southeast Asia, right? Right, so any evidence of the nativity of pigs in Fiji would have probably been brought in by the Austronesians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, um, so then it was just like, okay, I have to stop there now and connect the dots here and there. That's mm-hmm. quite interesting. Mm-hmm. The near Melanesian who lives, how mm-hmm. they eat. Mm-hmm. How did they coexist? The first inhabitants and the second inhabitants. Mm-hmm. So I'm a product of both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there is the indigenous civilization of culture, customs, and traditions, mm-hmm. traditional trade practices that were happening during that time. We see that through Lapita pottery. Another very clear example of that is how Sego was traded as photo along the uh, Coast coastline and how it came into my part of Central Province, which is in the bush further inland. Mm-hmm. And from indigenous civilization to then colonization mm-hmm. coming in, uh, the arrival of, um, I guess you could say, the white man, mm-hmm. where you had explorers, missionaries, and colonial administration. The explorer part was very interesting for me because I am growing up, I loved reading um, uh, Bernard Narakobi's books and the columns mm-hmm. that my father used to collect um, But he was a very pro-nationalist, and um, one of the things he talks about was how Papua, the the term Papua and New Guinea, became a Mm -hmm. bit more distant, right, to separate the German territory from the British territory in 1926. That's where he talks about political identity, which is a colonial construct. Right. Uh, And I said, okay, before that, then, who were the first from the West to explore the island of New Guinea from Sorong to Samarai? Mm before it was the West Papua and Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. So, so then that would be, um, I think it was the Portuguese explorers that Mm -hmm. um, gave the name Papua, Mm -hmm. and it would have been the Spanish that gave the name New Guinea, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but it referred to, it was just two different explorers that had a different
2: name
1: for the entire island. And so that's when I went, okay, so wait a minute, we have a dual identity. So when I'm talking to someone from um, the German part of the territory that was colonized, and he says, Here's New Guinea, and I say, I'm Papua. It. Technically, mm-hmm. it's also Papua New Guinea as you are. So that was a very interesting question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So from that came the global powers of. Um, Great Britain, Germany, Japan, and Australia before independence. Mm -hmm. And I know that the US had some involvement in Bougainville and in Manus. So that also be mostly in trading as well? Uh, Yes. Okay. Um, If if trading were to be involved, then I guess China would have to be in there somewhere, Mm -hmm. but uh, nowhere. Mm-hmm. still unraveling. <laughs> um, but then, and then there is World War II <laughs> education, obviously, mm-hmm. and self-determination, political independence,
2: mm-hmm.
1: nationalism, um, where in our... In, um, when forming the independent state of Papua New Guinea, the national goals and directive principles are really important to now create some kind of a framework for the political consciousness oh. of the Papua New Guinea mm-hmm.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. So the five national goals and directive principles which are um integral human development, equality and participation, national sovereignty and self reliance, um uh, natural resources and the environment and Papua New Guinea or corresponding and
0: So that's for the whole Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yes. And so it will be based on the Melanesian values of mutual respect, um, communal ownership, uh, reciprocity, love, and belonging, etc. cetera. Mm. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then there is obviously the post-colonial reality and the world economic system decolonization. That's the process that we continue to go through, but also our aid dependency on the West as well yeah. too. Yes. Mm. Can
0: can we talk a little bit about that uh, aid? aid dependency because that's something that I I feel like it's kind of, it has caught us stuck with this, you know, it's like a pull and and, and, and uh, push and pull that continues on and having that mindset of trying to decolonize whether it's food, whether it's politics or well, whatever it is in your work, line yeah. of work, how, where does that because it is hard, you know, and, and it creates this this uh somehow spirit of dependency we continue yep. to do so, and it's very frustrating can you Can you just touch on that a little bit, especially obviously with not just food but on the other aspect of your political you know affiliation in terms of being an advisor
1: yeah, I think um I mean it was really important to understand the full extent of our aid dependency mm-hmm. by. Uh, being able to sketch the dimensions of our political economy, you mm-hmm. could say, mm-hmm. that's tied back to when political independence was given to mm-hmm. our PNG, the type of systems that were set up deliberately as a result to make sure that we were connected to the world economic system. But at the same time, um, we'd have to be dependent on aid coming in from the personal countries in order to be able to be self determined. Exercise mm-hmm. our own I think in terms of like real life examples, um aid dependency it is had it has had on um the young Papadian's identity is really important because there's a lot of like um uh international organizations that have created all these youth platforms. For young people to have exposure to the world of their freedom of expression. So, travel and, and, uh, we can start to be part of our conferences, um, to go through a leadership development program, um, and so many others. So, uh, there is that visit. there is also a, this issue of aid dependency, uh, becomes more important now with the, the, Current, um, uh, I guess you could say, uh, news around Mm -hmm. the UPS loan for PNG. Mm -hmm. And so there's a group of uh, young people that want to have a conversation about it tomorrow. The technical jargon around it, they just want to like, what do we need to understand? Mm -hmm. Where do we start? Mm -hmm. Um, And so you find a place for that. a dependency in terms of wash project, so um, water, sanitation, and hygiene project. So, like, I work with the Ministry of Education, and um, one of the standards and guidelines for early childhood education classroom is to make sure that uh, because these are little kids uh, between the ages of four to eight years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in terms of standards and guidelines, when the inspector is going in to see, Uh, where the classroom is built and the kind of environment uh, that's been created for for the children. Mm -hmm. Um, Water sanitation and hygiene is very important. Where is the toilet? Is there, you know, what are the conditions of the classroom? Mm -hmm. Um, Is there a tap for them to wash their hands? Are there little puddles here and there? What is the drainage system like? Does it smell? Where do they store their rubbish? Where do do they manage their waste? All these things are really important. Um, But uh, so in order for the Department of Education to be able to ensure that these you know, target schools that were inspected are actually adhering to or are complying to the standards and guidelines that are set, it is really important to partner up with the existing development partners or international organizations that specialize in um, the FOSH project hmm. because they wouldn't have the capacity to that's a more practical example I could give of that. And I'm sure that there's so many others well too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So then, of course, we come to globalization. Yes. When we tie in
1: aid dependency to globalization, I think about the n- number of scholarship opportunities that have been made available for the to further their study And... For their masters. Australia keeps increasing its quota for that and mm-hmm. we have benefited from having more top uh, that have graduated with masters and PhDs who are part of the intellectual of society here. Um, and then there's also the UK with the Shivning Scholarship as well too. and then so there's a bit of geopolitics that's going on.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: there's New Zealand, there's mm-hmm. the US, um, and so with globalization, then you have social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you have SMEs, you have uh, small to medium enterprises, local businesses that are being set up, and that's definitely uh, a growing, um, a fast-growing, fast-paced sector for mm-hmm. the local economy in PNG. And so what small-to-medium enterprises would do, obviously, is uh, get their supplies from Alibaba. Mm-hmm. So good packaging or any type of packaging that they would need. Maybe have a couple of their uh, printed uh, materials that they've designed, uh, printed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I as well, and got brought in. So there's that bit of globalization, apart from the social media bit, the TikTok and expressing yourself on it the different forums that we use mm-hmm. where, um, like, for example, um, uh, political forums mm-hmm. um, are very, have shifted the way in which a good number of political leaders that actually care uh, try to change their public perception in order to continue to build the trust of the people, especially in the lead-up to a mm-hmm.
2: So
1: there's one of that the impact of globalization is of course the the fast food uh, culture yeah
0: mhm so let's let's touch on that a little bit before we uh before we um move on and and come to a close how is that how is uh, how do you think uh globalization has an impact on our food identity uh because in a way i think it also Impact. Um, I wonder if there's like a historical trauma, you know, if there is a his- historical trauma in terms of not just mm. food but if everything that's because you know everything is interconnected. So how does? Yeah. Um, and, and then of course now we we're in this mobilization of we have in the midst of COVID and then we have the price of gas, which the you know war for Ukraine and Russia. And we have our own geopolitics issues in the Pacific that are happening right now. How do you yep. see how do you see globalization impacting our food identity because again, yes. food when you go back like you mentioned, we go back to the place of origin and for Melanesian people, land is everything you know, yeah, it's like we stand on that it's life or death. Yes. Um, yeah. So how do we safeguard that? And and, and I guess I, my question is, how has or what, how do you think globalization has impacted mm-hmm. identity for us in terms of food? And how yeah. do we balance that? How do what, what? Yeah. How do we balance that so that we are not completely lost?
1: Yeah. I think that, um, you know, the evidence of that type of uh, struggle, To even find any kind of a balance uh, to what comes to mind is the uh, Pocmosi and other urban areas. How can you safeguard it when you have to deal with the concept of time and working hours and um, convenient? Uh, I'd like to give two examples. So there was a colleague of mine, and I we were just talking about how back in our communities, because she's from CY, C- the south of Brokenville. I'm from the other side, mainland PNG. And she, she's saying, oh, Claire, you know what I don't understand is how my relatives can sell their yams and buy a 10 kg backpack wax. And I was like, well, you know what I don't understand? How my relatives can catch fish and sell that fish to buy a cotton of tintage. So she's like, why are they doing that? What's, what's the real reason why? And I said, I think if we go a little further, I, I don't think we should dismiss it as laziness, it convenience. Be because let's be honest, uh, working in the garden, uh, harvesting, and then going up to town to sell your food and then get money for it is a lot so for actually, if you have traditional food that you're growing, it doesn't seed, so uh, the harvest is not great. So one thing that um, I don't really know much about this, but it's just the issue of how we used to preserve and store our food mm-hmm. um, during the Tumbunen times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably now has globalization has impacted the way in which we can just conveniently buy you know food that's already preserved and can last for long periods of time even in the village, so mm-hmm. that they can now focus on activities as well to mm-hmm. Whereas in Port Moresby, there's like you know uh, growing working class. And middle class that's now eating out more. Um, that's uh, We have food delivery businesses now that are so tired from work, working 9 to 5, uh, 8 to 5. Long hours, just texting, uh, doing an SMS transfer, an internet banking transfer to have the food delivered. Um, or buying a pizza, buying chips and chicken, just getting that and going to sleep, waking up the next day, working again.
0: Yeah, mm. Yeah, that is a that is, uh, good point. So... Where do we get that balance then? How do we, how do we, do we go back like for, for, okay, let's say in Port Mosby, do yep. making sure that, you know, you send your kids to the village so that, you know, you, they, they can see the understanding of where your food is coming from or the traditional performance of certain mm. things. Would that be where our Melanesian, because I, I don't think it's only happening in Papua New Guinea. it's happening everywhere. Even in the smaller countries yep. like Vanuatu is happening there too. Um, or do, yeah. you, is it, do you think language is part of it to keep that balance? If you can't, if you're losing that, but if, if we can speak a traditional language, would that be something that we can keep that in balance?
1: Mm. Yes, I think it's important to switch codes between the different languages. Mm-hmm. I see the importance of English, and I thank my father for prioritizing or wasting education so that I could survive in a globalized world to thrive it in. Um, so language definitely is important. It comes back to the individual Melanesian again. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice for the UK about uh, how uh, um, of a Melanesian identity you'd like to have while trying to balance the uh, effect we live in a Western you know um, uh, this, this. so we mm-hmm. so have to be very pragmatic about the type of balance that that does not go too far, that it makes us um, unrealistic about the global realities that we live in. Uh, Making a choice where you go, look, if I can't handle the city life or the town, and I really want to go back to my roots now, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I'm going to find a way to, um, well, money is very important, have a bit of savings, maybe set something up back home in the village Mm-hmm. and create an alternative like that, or create a lifestyle that was always there. But now I at least have, you know, some savings in my account to start up a little business mm-hmm. so that it to generate an income while living at home, being comfortable, maybe having a flush toilet on the side. You know, obviously going and washing in the city as well too, uh, or by the river, but also being able to then cook, um, would be a part of the community, obviously. Mm-hmm. And obviously the reality back, back- Home, in the community, is going to follow a concept of time that is much more different mm. than when you were in the town or in the right. city. So, yeah. in terms of finding that, that more of an individual decision about to how much ownership over Melanesian identity you want to have. Mm. Um, i I mean, because I know that like some of the honest conversations I have with, uh, you know, with some of my peers is the fact that. Uh, Part of the reason why they think the West is the best it has nothing to do with politics or whatever, but it's purely because they have keep from Western system. Mm. That's why. Uh, but that's more I guess you could take an little um, reality than it would be for everybody else. So yeah, it's just there's just so many layers and layers of it And depending on the individual Melanesian and where they fit in this modern Western triangular system mm. that we have, and you'd be able to determine your position within that reality and how you'd be able to find your and whether that would mean changing where you live now to be as connected as possible. Hmm. Hmm.
0: <laughs> so before we before we end, I just wanna thank you for such an amazing conversation. I mean, obviously like we you said before, there's so many layers of it and I can see, you know, both you and I and I could go forever, but um, I know you have, it's like, what, right now would be 11 o'clock right now for you, almost 11.30?
1: Yes, uh, Bowieville is an hour ahead of PNG, so it would be 12.23, years. I went by PNG time, so yes, yeah, 11.23 oh.
0: PNG time. Okay, I have to say, I have to remember that, I have to remember, you know, my, my good friend, uh, my very good friend, if she's listening, Florence Koro Koro, Um her and I went to college together, university together in New Zealand, so we're still... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um what would be the one thing that you want to tell uh perhaps the young people who are listening because I know you've, you know, been part of the young youth for for quite a while, so you you're needed in that space. What would you want to tell them uh, perhaps more about that, you know, identity and yeah, and and having food to be part of that um what yeah. would you want to tell them about who they are and how they can f- strike a balance, perhaps uh, not just, um, you know, if they're, if they're having a hard time in whatever form or shape, but looking at food in a way that it gives you pride of who you are instead of just, you know, and, and again, you could use food and starting a business or whatever that, that may be, since we're talking about food. What would be your message to them? Yeah.
1: I think um, there's three things that come to mind. The first one would be learn to question. Um, So just learning to question being able to approach your reality in that way. Um, And Then when you feel this sense of disorientation in your process of questioning, um, you can stop there and start all over again. That's number one. So I guess that's a bit more airy-fairy and philosophical. Uh, But number two would be, what does it mean to be human in Melanesia based Mm on your starting point?
0: This podcast is created and produced by Melanesian Women Today, a non-profit organization. Please visit our website at www.melanesianwomentoday.org. That is all one word. Melanesian Women Today envisions a Pacific region where every woman, girl, and child in their respective communities in Melanesia lives a productive, healthy, and fulfilling life. We are on a mission to improve the well-being and quality of lives and also to promote and improve leadership in women and girls in their communities. Please consider making a donation today on our website to support our work. Thank you for your support.